Well, good morning. Thank you so much to, to Pastor Raymond and to all of you just for the kind and generous hospitality that you've already showed. It's really such a privilege to be here and to worship with you today. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to the book of Job, Job chapter 9. I'll be reading the whole chapter for us together. Then Job answered, and he said, Truly I know that it is so, but how can a man be in the right before God? If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength, who has hardened himself against him and succeeded. He who removes mountains and they know it not, when he overturns them in his anger, who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble, who commands the sun and it does not rise, who seals up the stars, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea, who made the bear and Orion, the Pleiades and the chambers of the south, who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number. Behold, he passes by me and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. Behold, he snatches away. Who can turn him back? Who will say to him, what are you doing? God will not turn back his anger. Beneath him bowed the helpers of Rahab. How then can I answer him, choosing my words with him? Though I am in the right, I cannot answer him. I must appeal for mercy to my accuser. If I summoned him and he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice. For he crushes me with a tempest, and he multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not let me get my breath, but fills me with bitterness. If it's a contest of strength, behold, he is mighty. If it's a matter of justice, who can summon him? Though I am in the right, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I am blameless, he would prove me perverse. I am blameless. I regard not myself. I loathe my life. It is all one, therefore, I say, he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces of its judges. If it is not he, who then is it? My days are swifter than a runner. They flee away and they see no good. They go by like skiffs of reed, like an eagle swooping on the prey. If I say I will forget my complaint, I will put off my sad face and be of good cheer, I become afraid of all my suffering, for I know you will not hold me innocent. I shall be condemned. Why then do I labor in vain? If I wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lye, yet you will plunge me into a pit and my own clothes will abhor me. For he is not a man, as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There's no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. Let him take his rod away from me, and let not dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak without fear of him, for I am not so in myself. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that your word would speak to us and that your spirit would minister the word to us. Lord, would it bring comfort to those who are hurting, 
would it bring conviction and clarity to the blind? And we ask all of this in the strong name of Christ. Amen. Well, I'd love to ask a a simple question of you this morning to help us begin to enter into this text. Have you ever experienced a time of suffering in your life where you felt like God was absent, where you felt like God was silent? Maybe it's been a season of infertility between you and your spouse, or maybe it's been as a single person watching dear loved ones and roommates and colleagues go and get married. Maybe it's watching a son or a daughter or a close loved ones struggle with debilitating anxiety or addiction. Maybe it's dealing with a spouse or another loved one who's chronically abusing a substance. Or, or maybe it's just being stuck in a marriage that is less than fulfilling, that's not really flourishing. The question we might ask ourselves this morning is, in the midst of all of those experiences, is there a story in Scripture that begins to map onto that experience? Experiences where we find ourselves in the depths of difficulty and brokenness and hardship, where our theology of God is orthodox and right, but yet the experience and the feeling of knowing this God seems largely absent. Is there, is there someone who might resonate with that? And I think the question uh, is answered, yes. There is someone like that, and his name is Job. If you still have your Bibles open with you to Job 9, you might just turn back a couple of chapters to the beginning of the book. And let me just offer a little bit of some cliff notes for us as we head into Job 9, a couple of things that we learn about our dear friend Job. In the first five verses of chapter 1, we learn something about Job. We're told that Job is a man who is blameless, who's upright, who fears God and turns away from evil. And friends, this is, this is the resume of all resumes, right? If you're applying for a job, if you were uh, trying to get in somewhere good, this would be the kind of resume that you would want. One commentator writes this. He says, this isn't necessarily a claim that Job is morally perfect as God is perfect, but that rather in the bounds of human fallenness, the righteousness of Job is commended by God. Christopher Ash says that this titling of Job being blameless and upright, a man who fears God and turns away from evil, speaks to Job's genuineness and his authenticity. We know in the balance of the book that Job never claims to be completely sinless. In Job 7 and 13 and Job 14, but on the whole, what we are told is that Job is indeed a man who is blameless and upright, who fears God, and turns away from evil. In addition to that, the the resume continues. We're told that not only those things about Job's character, but we're told that Job has seven sons and three daughters and 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels and so on. And at the end of verse 3, the the narrator records for us that Job is the greatest of all the people in the East. And at that time, the East was all there was. So it's almost as if the narrator is telling us Job is the greatest person on the face of the earth. It's in the midst of this blessing and description of Job that uh, we learn something, though, about a heavenly meeting in verses 6 through 12. In verses 6 through 12, the narrator is going to describe a scene which, at least to Job's readers, would have been quite common, this uh, heavenly council that is happening. And in verses 9 through 11, we learn of this challenge that Satan poses to God. Uh, Satan says in verse 9, Then Satan answered the Lord and says, Did Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him in his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand, 
touch all that he has, and surely he will curse you to his face. Right? What does Satan ultimately want here? Well, he ultimately wants to make God a liar. One commentator writes this. He says, the challenge that Satan issues over to God is a simple one. Satan is saying that none of God's people love him more than they love themselves at the end of the day. Their love for God, their faithfulness, and their fidelity to him, it's not God-centered, but it's ultimately self-centered. It's about what they get out of God. Don't, don't forget this particular theme because a little bit later on, this will become incredibly important to us. Satan gets to work on the challenge that he's issued. And in verses 13 through 19, not only are we told something about Job and told something about a heavenly counsel, but we're told of Job's losses in his sufferings in verses 13 through 19. The narrator introduces uh, this section in verse 13 saying, now there was a day. We've all had bad days, right? We've all had days where uh, when we get to the close and we get to the end, we are thankful to put that day's events behind us. But probably if you looked up a meme of bad days back in the day, Job probably takes the cake. Job had the day of days. A total of four messengers will come to Job and tell him that he has lost everything. Uh, He has lost all of his oxen, all of his donkeys. A fire has come and destroyed all of his sheep and servants. People have come and taken away his camels and servants. And then the fourth messenger brings the most distressing, most dire news of all. All of Job's children and their spouses have died. The devastation is total and it's catastrophic. But it's in the midst of this catastrophic loss that in our fourth little introductory heading, we we learn something about Job's response. We're told in verses 20 through 22 that Job arises, that he tears his robe, he shaves his head, and he falls on the ground. And again, good readers of uh, Job's account would have said, yeah, that's, that's exactly what we would do. That's exactly what one should do in the midst of such catastrophic loss. His responses would have been culturally normed. And that would have made sense to the readers. But when we get to the end of Job's response, there's, there's something additional that moves us a little bit closer into an experience that, that there's going to be something quite different. And it's this, that at the end of all of this, we are told that Job worships. Job worships. Job, in the midst of his grief, worships and he falls on his face and he says, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. With that, by way of background and context, you can flip back over to Job chapter 9 and let me fill in a little bit of the gaps between Job 1 all the way to 9. After all of this immense loss and suffering, Satan comes back to God and says, hey, I don't don't think my job is completely done yet. You know, I took a lot of stuff away from him, but if you would just let me actually get to Job himself and God gives and grants permission to Satan, and Satan afflicts Job with some really horrible things physiologically. After that, three of Job's friends will come from afar, Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar, and they'll travel from a great distance, and we're told at the end of chapter 2 that they'll sit with him in silence, they see his suffering, they sympathize with his suffering, But then what happens after seven days is they begin in cycles of dialogues to, in some ways, almost counsel Job, offer these one-on-one counseling sessions with Job. And I'll just tell you in advance, these would not be counselors that you would want to go and see. You might get a first appointment with them, but you probably wouldn't return. But Job doesn't have that luxury. He's stuck with them for quite a few cycles. And Eliphaz will get a stab at it, and then Job will reply. 
Bildad, who's the second and probably the most difficult of the friends, will begin to speak to Job in Job chapter 8, and he has some really horrible and harsh things to say to Job. And so it is that as we come to chapter 9, we see Job probably at one of his lowest points in the midst of all of the book. And the way that we'll organize our time together in Job 9 is just alongside three simple headings, if you're keeping track. We'll see that Job says something about God. We'll see that Job expresses a problem. And then we'll see that Job considers his options. Job will say something about God. He'll express his problems and he'll consider his choices. Let's dive in together. Job says something about God. In verse 4 in Job 9, Job will begin a hymn of praise, extolling God's power in all of creation. He begins in verse 4 saying that God is wise in heart and mighty in strength. And for the next 10 verses, essentially, Job will go on to demonstrate this over the balance of his hymn. He's going to extol God's power and control over all the earth, specifically the mountains, the earth, the sun, the stars, the the heavens, and the skies. From top to bottom, Job is going to say there's nothing in all of creation that God does not control. In verse 5, Job says that God can remove mountains, and they know it not. In the Old Testament, right, mountains represented the apex of geographical stability, right? And so Job is saying, man, the, the most stable point in all of creation, a mountain, God, you can uproot it and move it. In Job 6, in verses 6 and 7, Job tells of God's ability to shape the earth, to command the sun to make it not rise. And in verse 8, he's the God who tramples the waves of the sea or rides the backs of the waves. In the Old Testament, right, the seas represented the opposite of the mountains. The, The seas and the waters represented all that was chaotic and out of control in the world. Basically, Job says at the beginning and at the end, from the most stable thing in all of creation and the most unstable thing in all of creation, God, you are in complete control. But you'll also begin to read between the lines that as Job says this about God, therein lies quite a conundrum for him. Because the problem that Job begins to wrestle with, friends, is this, is God, if you are so powerful, if you can uproot mountains and ride the backs of the seas, why can't you change my situation? Why can't you change my suffering? Why can't you change my circumstances? Why in the world would I lose everything that I have? Every day I go out and I make sacrifices on behalf of my children. I am blameless. I'm upright. I fear you. God, you are a powerful God. And if you can do all of this in creation, then can't you change my circumstances? The very thing that Job praises about God also at the same time seems to be the very cause of Job's problems. And friends, isn't this quite a familiar experience for all of us, I imagine? Many of us, we come this morning, we come to our problems with an orthodox knowledge about who God is. We know that God is sovereign. We know that he's good. We know that he's wise. We know that he's merciful. But it's in the midst of our brokenness. It's in the midst of our distress that these questions arise of, well, God, if you're really good, then why? Why am I going through this? That brings us then to our second heading, where Job begins to express some of these problems that are coming to the surface. And in the midst of his suffering, Job is going to essentially ask four different questions. He's going to ask four questions. And when you hear these questions, what's so fascinating is Scripture always is so timeless, 
and timely, right? These are questions that Job is asking, but friends, these, these are questions that you and I ask as well. Number one, what can make this situation right? Number two, where is God? Number three, does God know that I am blameless? And number four, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? We'll move through each of these somewhat expeditiously. Number one, what can make this situation right? Look at uh, verse two. Job asks the age-old question. He says, how can a man be in the right before God? How, how can a person be vindicated? Now, the context of this is his good friend, Bildad. We might call him Bildad the legalist, right? Uh, Bildad has just told Job in Job chapter 8, essentially, and this is my paraphrase, listen, God gives good things to good people, and he gives bad things to bad people. So, Job, you probably have been really, really bad, so what you need to do is you need to go, plead your case before God, get in the right with God, and then guess what? God's going to give you all the good stuff back. That's, that's essentially what Bildad is saying. And so Job is coming into this, into chapter 9, essentially saying, okay, if my good friend Bildad is right, well then, well then how can I do that? How can I be in the right before God? But unfortunately for Job, the problem is, is that the one person who could answer and provide the answers won't respond to his phone calls, won't respond to his cries. Look at verse 3. Job says, if one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. I find personally, my wife being the mother of our four kids, that, that moms in particular, young moms, they, they reach a certain point in the day, right? Maybe it's right around 5 or 6 o'clock where you're done with questions from your kids, right? It's like, I'm not answering any more questions. What are we eating? Can I stay up late? Can I watch TV? Do I have to go? At some point, moms, just, you just tune it out. It's a wonderful, wonderful gift that you have. And it's almost as if God in some ways is saying, listen, no. We're not answering. It's, it's radio silence. I am not going to answer any more questions. And you can sense that frustration on behalf of God, on behalf of Job, rather. Brings us to our second problem that Job expresses. Essentially, where are you? God, where are you? Look at verse 11. Job says, behold, God passes by me and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. Look at verse 16. Job says, if I summoned him and he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice. Again, friends, how similar is that sentiment to things that we oftentimes feel and experience? Job believes that, that God is silent and absent in the midst of his sufferings. I was talking to a friend the other day in a counseling session who's going through immense pain and suffering, and, and he had this turn of phrase that I thought was so insightful. He said, I feel like my prayers go out, but my prayers don't go up. He said, there's something when I'm praying, I'm crying out to God, the, the words are coming out of my mouth. I'm, I'm verbalizing them and I'm, I'm getting them out, but I don't feel like they're reaching God. I feel like there's radio silence on the other side of my distress. And friends, what you note then in this, this, this subtext of Job's lament here is that Job doesn't doubt God's power, but Job does begin to doubt God's presence in his life. He's extolled it, he's recognized it, but the actual lived experience of a God who draws near to us in time of trouble, Job is beginning to say, I don't know, I'm unsure. God, where are you? It brings us into our third problem because you can begin to see the progression because Job's getting a little bit more exercise in the question of, does, does God know I'm righteous? 
Right? Does, does God know that I haven't done all of these bad things that my friends are, are putting forward as a cause for what has happened to me? Essentially, Job is saying, I, I don't think I really deserve this. Four different times in this chapter, he will cry out to God about his blameless right life. Look at verse 15. Job says, though I am in the right. Verse 20, though I am in the right. At the end of verse 20, though I am blameless. And then verse 21, I am blameless. I regard not myself. Now again, remember what we said earlier. Job is not saying that he's sinless. He's already will have admitted in three different times throughout the book that he's a sinner and that he's a transgressor. But what Job is saying, and it's an experience I'm sure that we have had too, that as you rack your brain, as you bring your heart before the Lord, you say, I don't think that I have done something that then necessitates or requires that God punish me, right? There's, there's not secret sin in my life. Like, God, I am blameless. And here's the, here's the fascinating benefit, friends, though, that we get on the other side of this as readers, is that what Job is not aware of is that on three different occasions, who is it that actually affirms Job's blamelessness, his uprightness, his fear, and the fact that he turns away from evil? Who is it? It's God, Right? What Job does not get the benefit of is hearing God's words himself about Job in verse 8 of chapter 1, in verse 3 of chapter 2. God will say, hey, have you considered my servant Job? You know that, that spiritual resume that you just read about? Listen, I affirm that. My servant Job is a man who is blameless, who's upright, who fears me and turns away from evil. And even better than that, at the end, in the passage that we have already read in our confession, In Job 42, 7, God says on the other side, listen, talking to all of Job's friends, you have not spoken of me what is what? What is right, as my servant Job has, right? God is actually the one who commends Job's character, and yet Job never gets the benefit of hearing those words from God. One commentator writes this, he says, Job believes that he is in the right, he just doesn't know how to go about it to set about establishing this. That brings us then to our our fourth problem that Job expresses. Not only what can make the situation right, where are you, God? God, do you know I'm righteous? But number four, God, why? Why are you doing this? Now, it seems like in the balance of chapter nine that earlier on, Job essentially agrees with Bildad's arguments of good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people. But he begins to change his mind, right? As he's crying out to the Lord, and you can notice this in verses 20 through 24. Job says, though I'm in the right, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I'm blameless, God's still going to prove me perverse. I'm blameless. I regard not myself. I loathe my life. It is all one, therefore, I say. He destroys who? Both the blameless and the wicked. He says, listen, at the end of the day, it's not just bad things happen to bad people and good things happen to good people. Listen, as I look around at life, as I look at the environment that I'm embedded in, that doesn't doesn't seem to be true to life, God, because guess what? It seems like bad things are happening to good people. Therefore, you must be the one doing it. Job's sense of why God is doing this reaches an even lower point in verse 23. Job says, when disaster brings sudden death, God mocks at the calamity of the innocent. And kind of comes to the bottom of it in verse 24. Job says, if it's not he, then who is it? 
If it's not he, then who is it? Now, again, on the other side of this experience, what is so fascinating is his, all of these questions that Job asks, how many of them ever get answered by God? None. None of these questions that, that Job brings before God, will he ever get an answer? What you see and what you hear and what you really feel as you're reading Job's lament is just the deep, deep-seated pain. It's palpable. Right? I know that you and I have all been there, desperately searching for some sort of answer in our suffering. Right? All of us, as human beings, right, we're meaning makers, we're interpreters. We're always and constantly trying to make sense out of our world. And there's something about suffering that I think inherently we know that, that suffering and brokenness, it is this most unhelpful intruder into the life that God designed and created. Right? That there's something about suffering that doesn't seem to map on quite right into God's design for who we are. And there's something that can be so unsettling and so difficult about pain and suffering for us that for many of us, it literally brings us to our knees before the Lord. Well, that brings us then to our third and our final heading where essentially that's where Job is at. Job considers his options. You can hear the exasperation in Job's lament. And when you get to verses 25 through 26, he he begins to wax a little philosophical about just how short and how brief life is. And Job's going to give three metaphors for life's brevity. He says in verses 25 and 26 that his days are like a runner, his days are like skiffs of reed, and that his days are like an eagle swooping down on its prey. His idea of his days are like a runner, right? They, They go by fast right? Time is just flying by. His days are like skiffs of reed, and this idea of skiffs of reed, right? You can imagine these, these childlike boats that would have been made out of pulled up reeds that are bound together and then set off. He says sooner or later, those skiffs of reed, right? They're not really going to be held together that well, and they're just going to crumble and fall apart. My days are, are fragile, right? They're not sturdy. And then finally, he says, my days are like an eagle swooping down on its prey, meaning, man, life's dangerous. At any point, I could just get gobbled up by this predator. Trumper Longman says, in some ways, Job is saying that even though the days go by fast, they're not going by well for Job. So again, it's this this odd dynamic and paradox for Job where he's saying, man, life is just flying by me, but these days are flying by and they're incredibly painful. So Job begins to say, okay, God, what do I do in the midst of this? And he's going to lay out three options Three successive options, and we'll, we'll read about the first option in verses 27 through 29. I call this the forget about it and be happy. This is the, the New Jersey option, as it were, right? Forget about it, just be happy. In verse 27, Job says, then if I say I will forget my complaint, I'm just going to put off my sad face and be of good cheer. Right? This is the, hey, just forget about your suffering, compartmentalize it. Kind of just stuff it down. Put on a happy face. When you come into church on Sunday and people ask you how you're doing, just say, I'm fine. And just sit down in the pew. Don't think about your suffering. Don't, don't burden other people with your hardships. Nobody likes a downer, right? So just stuff it way down deep. But just as soon as Job voices this, he realizes it's not a viable option because he says in verse 28, he says, I become afraid of all my suffering for I know you won't hold me innocent. Why then do I labor in vain? 
Right? Job says, listen, I might be able to forget my suffering. I might be able to compartmentalize it. I might be able to go in and be a bit dishonest with my, with my fellow church members. But at the end of the day, you're a God who's powerful and is all-knowing. And you know what I'm going through. I can't lie about it. So Job quickly dispenses with this option. He moves on to a second one. This is the, I call it the atone for yourself, the, the make it better. This is kind of the good Christian option. Like, you know what? Just do more. Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. In verse 30, Job says, If I wash myself with snow and I cleanse my hands with lye. Right, Job's saying, okay, listen, maybe, maybe there is some bad stuff in my life that I need to get rid of. So here's the key. I'm just going to work harder. Try harder. Be a better person. Go to church. Go to Bible study. Read my Bible. Go to church. Pay tithes. I'm just going to really become a better person. But Job realizes that this isn't going to be a solution either. And many years later, another person is going to try a similar thing and realize that's not going to work either. In Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 22, listen to what Jeremiah writes. He says, though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord. Right, Job says, listen, I can use all the dove body wash in the world, but I'm still going to smell and he says at the end in verse 31, he says, You will still plunge me into a pit, and my own clothes will abhor me. And so like the first option, Job throws this one quickly out the door. There's nothing I can do to, to make my life better because at the end of the day, the thing that needs to be made right, I can't get rid of just through good works. I can't get rid of just through a quick shower. And so he's going to move then to his third option. This is the get a good lawyer option, I call it. In verse 32, Job says, For he is not a man as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. Job finally lands on a third option. You can maybe sense a sense of optimism, right? Says, this, this is it, man. I just need a really good lawyer. I need the best out there. Now, this desire for a mediator will be mentioned later on in the book. Remember in Job 16, 19, in one of the more famous passages in Job, Job will say, Behold, my what? My witness is in heaven, and he who testifies for me is on high. We're even up at verse 15 in chapter 9. Allow your eye to glance up there. Job says, Though I'm in the right, I cannot answer him. He says, I must what? I must appeal for, for mercy to my accuser. Job, Job is saying, Listen, if... If I could just find the right lawyer, if I could find the right guy that would go and represent me, then, then that would do the trick. But here's the problem. Look at verse 33. He says, but there's no arbiter between us who might, what? Who might lay his hand on us both. Job has no lawyer, there's no advocate, there's no Perry Masons or Ben Matlocks or Jack McCoys or, or Harvey Specters standing up to say, hey, I'm going to represent you. And in addition to that, Job realizes that he's never going to find a lawyer that can fulfill two requirements that Job's case needs. He needs someone who can be accepted before God, right? Job, Job's saying, listen, none of my calls are being answered by God. I need someone who can go before God and God will listen to him and will give him a hearing. But Job has another requirement. Job says, I need someone, though, who knows what it's like to go through suffering. I need someone who knows what it's like to be fully human. I, I need a lawyer who can lay his hands on us both. Let's push pause there and we'll come back to it. Let's make a couple of observations by way of application 
as we think about Job's story. And there's three that I want to just briefly draw your attention to. The first of which is this. As you read Job chapter 9, there's, there's something to be said about grief and suffering that are incredibly complicated situations. Grief and suffering are complicated. I think all too often in our grief and in our suffering, we can, we can compartmentalize those things. We can reduce those things. We can be simplistic in our understanding of grief. And at worst, we can imitate and mimic the, the counsel of Job's friends. We can say things in traffic and aphorisms like, hey, don't worry, the best is yet to come, or time heals all wounds, or hey, don't worry, you're going to get closure soon. This, is, this feels bad now, but just don't worry on the other side of it, you'll be fine. God's working everything together for your good. But friends, we know that at the end of the day, simplistic answers to complex problems rarely satisfied. What we live and what we suffer and experience is rarely healed by information. Right? Just knowing certain things about God or about the way the Lord works rarely is enough to begin to make a dent into the lived experience of our grief and our hardships. The pain of losing a child, the grief of a broken relationship, the difficulty of being stuck in a, in a low-level job that you find no joy in. Right? The, the orthodox theology that we have is good, but it oftentimes doesn't dig down a little bit deeper into our actual lived experience, right? And when we come to Job chapter 9, we see, we see someone wrestling with that. We see someone who's blameless, who's upright, who, who is a good man. He's the greatest of all the people, and yet his grief and his suffering remain unmitigated by his knowledge of God. Job is all over the place, but he's proof positive, friends, for you and I, that in the midst of our suffering and in the midst of our difficulties, that God's invitation to us is to come and to speak to him honestly about such things. What we see in Job 9 and what I think is true for us then is what Job 9 represents for us is permission. It represents an invitation of saying, listen, in the midst of your grief and your suffering, don't hold back. God is not a God who wants to cloak himself in niceties when things are good, but not hear the difficult things of your life. God never calls us to sanitize our sufferings or to simplify our sufferings before we come to him in prayer. And in fact, when we see what God says about Job, again, what we see is what we've already mentioned is that God himself says in all of this, Job doesn't sin. And actually, Job has spoken of me what is right. So what's represented for us here in Job 9, then, is an invitation, friends, for you and I in the midst of our grief and suffering to hold the tension of what we know to be true about God, but yet be honest about the painful experiences that we live. Second application I think that we can make here is this, is at the end of the day, remember the object of your faith. Remember the object of your faith. When you are suffering, it can seem that there is not much that you can do. There's not much that you can change in your situation. But what Job 9 represents for us is when all seems lost, you come to the Lord. You come and you meditate, you cry out, you, you plead with the object of your faith. Friends, what would it look like for you today to do this? What would it look like for you to come to the object of our faith and plead and cry out before him? Timothy Keller says this. He says, it is not the strength of our faith, 
but it's the object of our faith that truly saves us. Strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to weak faith in a strong branch. Job's faith here by the, by the end of chapter 9, it's, it's pretty weak, right? But his faith, right, is it's a faint line of dogged determination to come before the Lord. Third observation I think that we can make from Job chapter 9 is this, is hope is an action. Hope is an action that we do before it's a feeling that we feel. Hope is an action that we do before it's a feeling we feel. Now, culturally, right, when we say things like, oh, I hope this happens, or, you know, I hope, you know, I hope the, I hope the Cleveland Browns actually have a winning season, right? Those, we all know, especially those of us in Cleveland, Ohio, that is wishful thinking at best. Probably never going to happen, right? When the Bible speaks of hope, it is entirely upside down from our cultural understanding, right? Hope in the Bible is a confident expectation that the Lord is up to good and will do good. So in Job 13, 15, Job will say, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. Job 19, 25 through 26, for I know that my redeemer lives and at the last he will stand upon the earth and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. For Job, hope isn't just a feeling, right? We already know what Job's feeling. He's just spent about 32 verses telling us about how he feels. But it's in the midst of those feelings that Job is actually actively hoping in the Lord. His actual lament, his actual prayer to the Lord is an embodied hope where he comes before the Lord and he says, listen, this isn't just wishful thinking. This is me banking everything that I know to be true, that you are God and that you are listening to me. Friends, as we come back then to our friend Job, and and hopefully you you can pick up where we left off on the story, right? There's something about Job's story as we're listening, right? You're you're good, sensible people who are well taught. So you will know that there's something about Job's story that probably reminds you of another story, right? Another story that this story echoes. Because you see, centuries earlier than Job, Satan tried this exact same attack as he did with Job on our earliest ancestors, right? Adam and Eve. In the Garden of Eden, Satan comes to Adam and Eve and he essentially says something like this. He says, listen, God doesn't really love you. God doesn't really care about you. God, God doesn't want you to have a good life. God's, God's probably lying to you. He just, he's actually nervous that, that you're going to be like him, right? Satan, always the envelope pusher, never to be content, right? He, he keeps pushing it, especially with Eve, right? He, Eve, you've got to be kidding me. God's just trying to keep you down. He's trying to keep you from being like him. He's just trying to exploit your life. The lie of Satan is this. You really can't trust God. You really can't depend on God. And if you do, if you really trust God, if you really try to depend on God, you're not going to be happy. He's just going to make your life miserable. He's going to make you suffer. He's going to crush you. Centuries later, Satan, because he isn't too original, will try this same tactic again, not only with Adam and Eve, not only with Job, but he'll assault another innocent sufferer, Jesus Christ. You see, when when Job suffered, right, he was only relatively innocent. Jesus was truly innocent and blameless. Jesus is the only innocent human being whom God told, if you obey me fully, 
I will crush you fully. Jesus is the only human being who perfectly served God for nothing. So when Jesus dies on the cross for you and I, when he suffers at the crucifixion, Jesus can prove, friends, once and for all, that Satan is an absolute liar. You see, friends, Jesus is the person that Job was longing for and looking forward to. Jesus is the object of our faith who says to us, listen, I have been crushed for you so that you don't have to endure the ultimate crushing. Jesus is the person, right, that that Job was looking forward to. Jesus is the person who could lay his hand on us both. Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Redeemer, is a man of what? He is a man of sorrows, fully acquainted with grief, but yet whom God would accept. Friends, even when Job felt that God was silent in his suffering, God was actively at work on Job's behalf. Friends, God is never silent in our sufferings, but he speaks to us through his word, and he speaks to us through his Son, assuring us of his comfort and care and assuring us that he does understand the full extent of our pain and our suffering and that he has not left us alone in it. And friends, perhaps you come here this Sunday. Perhaps you have come in Sunday's past and you find yourself in a difficult spot. Maybe you have been trying to deal with suffering, kind of like option one of just, I'm just going to be happy. Everybody at Christ Church West Joshua just seems to have it together. Everybody seems to be happy. Maybe that's what I need to do. Or maybe some of you are going through a difficult time of suffering and, and your, your mantra is just try harder, be a better person, pull myself up by my own bootstraps. Maybe some of you are just looking for someone to speak up on your behalf, to, to plead your case. Friends, I would tell you, come to Jesus Christ. Come to the arbiter, our mediator, our great advocate who can lay his hand on us both, who can be a man who is fully acquainted with your griefs, with your sorrows, your sufferings, and who says to you at the cross, my life for your life, my crushing so that you can live. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you this morning and we thank you for we thank you for our friend Job. We thank you for this record of his pain and his lament here in Job 9. There's a humanity and there's an honesty that is represented here in Job that for many of us here this morning we can we can come alongside and we can echo. Lord, I pray that for those who are suffering and who feel God is silent, who feel that you have moved far away from them, Lord, I pray that this morning through your word and through your spirit, you would both remind and reassure that you are a God who draws near to us in our troubles. You are a God who is a refuge in times of trouble. And Lord, you don't just say those things to us. You, through your Son, physically embodied, draw close to us in the midst of those things. Lord, help us to know this and to know it in our hearts. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.